Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. We're expecting another hot day across California as the state continues to endure a blistering heat wave. Temperatures are not expected to reach the record highs parts of Northern California saw on Tuesday, but many inland spots are expecting temperatures well above 100 degrees. The California Independent System operator has already called for another day of conservation, asking Californians to use less electricity between 3 and 10 p.m. today. And as the heat wave drags on, broken cooling systems are disrupting the school day in many parts of California. That's forced many school districts to bring in fans and portable AC units to lower classroom temperatures. KQED reporter Daisy Wynn visited a Bay Area school that's cutting the day short this week because it has no air conditioning. It was already 90 degrees in Novato when students were let out of Lou Sutton Elementary at half past noon Wednesday. Fifth grader Gianna Corsetti says fans are circulating the air in her classroom, but they don't do much to help her focus. It gets really stuffy in there and it gets gross and it's just like really hot. Novato Unified School District officials said they had set aside money to install AC in three schools over the summer. But supply chain issues caused delays and inflation pushed the project a few million dollars over budget. Gianna's dad Robert thinks officials didn't prioritize fixing a school they had considered closing last year. Lou Sutton serves students from mostly Latino and working class families. They didn't kind of focus on the foundation when they should have. So we're dealing with the aftermath of that now and it's only getting hotter, right? So it's kind of hard to expect kids on, say, the other side of town, they get AC, they get more days and more hours in class. And, you know, the schools that don't have it, those kids have less hours in class. As a result of a decision of a few, impact, you know, thousands of people. Jorge Castillo said picking up his two kids around lunchtime throws off the rest of his workday. He's upset his children can't enjoy in-person learning after being derailed by the pandemic. Inequities at play here, and, uh, and now it's, it's boiling up to the point where the kids can't even go to class. District officials say AC installation has to wait until next summer because it's too disruptive to do the work when school's in session. For the California Report, I'm Daisy Nguyen in Novato. 
opponents of a first-of-its-kind state law that could raise wages for fast food workers have officially started an effort to delay and potentially block it. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports. AB 257 was just signed by Governor Newsom on Labor Day after stiff opposition from business groups and fast food corporations that argued they were unfairly singled out. It was set to go into effect next year. Now that's in question after two California residents filed paperwork beginning the process to qualify a measure, possibly for the 2024 ballot, aimed at overturning the law. That frustrates Yolanda Torres. She works at a subway in San Jose. This franchise don't want to lose power. And they don't care about the people. They care about money, 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 money and power. Supporters of AB 257 are now expecting a tsunami of corporate spending to block it. Most fast food workers are people of color making close to minimum wage. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Parents fighting against school closures in Oakland and several California school districts got a win this week. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill requiring certain districts make time for an equity impact analysis before closing schools. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. Currently, the new law will apply to four districts in California under state pressure to repay state loans, Oakland, Vallejo, Ingleside, and South Monterey County. Although the new law will stop districts from making quick decisions without engaging parents, it does not stop closures that have already been voted on, like in Oakland. Bay Area Assemblyperson Mia Bonta authored the bill. She says this is disappointing. But the reality is that any school districts and Oakland Unified included, has the ability to follow the intent of this legislation now. And that's what I'm hoping Oakland Unified School District will do, as well as other school districts that are in this challenging time of having to consider school closures because of declining enrollment or whatever other pressures they're experiencing. In a statement, the Oakland district said the law won't change its decision to close six schools at the end of this academic year. For The California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an emergency budget package Tuesday, authorizing $41 million to fight the spread of the monkeypox virus. KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier has the details. Most of the $41 million will go to state and local health departments. The goal is to make access to monkeypox treatment, testing, and vaccinations easier. 
$1.5 million is earmarked for community clinics such as APLA Health, which provides care for low-income LGBTQ Angelinos. Associate Director Craig Pulsiver says they need to be reimbursed for the thousands of monkeypox vaccinations they've administered since July. This is a process that's likely going to take at least six months, if not longer. We ask and plead with the state to act with all urgency and really make sure that this funding moves through the process and out to community partners as quickly as possible. Since the outbreak began in May, more than 4,100 people in California have tested positive, though new cases appear to be slowing. Monkeypox vaccine eligibility remains restricted to high-risk groups due to short vaccine supply. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. A bill that could make California a refuge for transgender youth seeking gender-affirming care is on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. Advocates and lawmakers who support the legislation say it provides life-saving care, but opponents say it interferes with a parent's authority over their child's health decisions. CalMatters' Ariel Gans reports. When Kathy Mollick's son transitioned in 2012, it took months to find a doctor in San Diego who was willing to treat him. When I called to make appointments, they kept telling me we don't treat kids like that here. There is more support in California now than there was a decade ago, but a recent wave of legislation is threatening access to trans health services in other states. In some states, parents could face prison time if they allow their child to receive gender-affirming care. Again, Molig. Protecting the rights of these parents to make these medical choices and get this treatment for these kids without having to worry about any of the ramifications of prosecution is super important. But some lawmakers and other opponents say the bill threatens parents' authority over their child's health care decisions. Santa Barbara attorney Aaron Friday shares these concerns. I am a parent of a child who at one point thought that she was transgender. Friday now worries, if the bill is signed into law, that the state could bypass parents who do not consent to their child receiving gender-affirming care. Because it is an absolute affront to parents who don't want to subject their minor children to interventions. As of now, every law that criminalizes gender-affirming care has been delayed by legal challenges. But advocates like Kathy Molig worry about the ripple effect if any of the legislation gets through. Governor Newsom has until the end of the month to sign the bill into law. For the California Report, I'm Ariel Gans in Berkeley. A new report out from the Prison Policy Initiative reveals unexpected data about incarceration rates among rural Californians. CalMatters' Nigel Duara has been looking into this new research and talking to folks on the ground to try to get more context. He joins us now. Welcome, Nigel. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Tell me, this new report drew from data that California hadn't had access to before. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? So for the first time in its 2020 census, the state counted prison inmates in their home districts instead of the cities and counties where they're incarcerated in. So that's basically how most of the rest of the country does it. That is how California did it until this census. So what happened is they're doing redistricting maps, and these are the first ones that are going to count people where they lived before they were incarcerated, if they can find where that is. You can imagine that gives their home districts a little bit more political power. And uh, like I said, there's nine other states that are taking steps to do this to end what they call prison gerrymandering. Talk to us about some of the figures that jumped out at you most in rural California. And I'm just immediately thinking, especially, you know, Shasta and Kern counties. 
So when you look at the overall data, of course, the most people are coming from the biggest counties, like Los Angeles County, San Diego County. But per capita, per 100,000 people, the highest rates of incarcerated people actually come from small rural counties. So the data even lets you see incarceration rates by census tract, and that can sometimes be as small as like a neighborhood. So for instance, in Shasta County, way up in rural Northern California, it's the top of the list for incarcerated people per 100,000. There's one census tract in Redding where one in every hundred people is in prison. Wow. Yeah, and there's one neighborhood in Bakersfield that had one of the highest incarceration rates in the whole state. It's in Kern County, which also has the highest homicide rate in the state, and that's been true for six years running. Wow. And what are experts saying is driving this disproportionate incarceration rates in these rural areas? Well, I mean, we know that nailing down one or a couple of factors in terms of like who's doing crime and why it can be tough. But when you talk to people on the ground, it's a lot of the same issues that we know is making life hard for people in Los Angeles or in the Bay Area. When you ask people in Shasta County, they said that there's three main drivers of crime. And it's not too different from the stuff that I hear in Los Angeles. High housing costs, untreated mental illness, and NIMBYs, people saying, don't build new housing in my backyard. Then on top of that, in Shasta County, the fires from 2018 displaced a lot of people. So folks started moving up into Shasta, into more rural reaches. That sent all the housing costs higher. Folks who were already on the economic fringe are getting pushed all the way to its edge. Interesting. I wonder if we'll see more of that as fires continue to ravage the state. Well, certainly as long as you have people that are leaving bigger cities and going into the more rural areas. Interesting. Did you um, find any other reasons besides the ones that you listed uh, for Bakersfield? For Bakersfield, I mean, it's a lot of gangs. Uh, it's a lot of MS-13. Um, and it's a lot of conflict. I went on a on a long tour with somebody who, who works with gangs uh, in Bakersfield. You could just point from block to block. Well, this is where this territory ends and this is where it starts. And really from every block to block, you can see these are all friction points happening throughout Bakersfield. Um, so the reasons definitely differ in different rural counties, but the incarceration rates really tell you that these are places where people are missing. You know, one of out of every hundred people in a neighborhood in Reading is not there. All right. Well, thank you again, Nigel. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Cal Matters' Nigel Dwara. And that's the California Report for Thursday, September 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hi there, I'm Randa Dedfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.